The guests on Love Hurts occasionally use some adult language and go into some more intense subject matter, but that's kind of how real life works anyway. Welcome back. This is Love Hurts. I'm Brian Berlin. Today's guest is Keith Sari. Keith is a communicator and podcaster living in Montreal, Canada. In college, Keith fell for a girl that he didn't really know how to ask out. They drifted apart and a few years went by, but then she came back into Keith's life as he was still trying to figure out his place in the world. Hey, Keith, how's it going? I'm all right, Brian, how are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, I feel like you would appreciate this last night. I did like a curling clinic for the first time ever, and I learned I learned. <laughs> Is that how because to curl. I'm Canadian, or there's something particular? Well, I, yeah, maybe you're really into curling. curling, but I just figured you're Canadian and you'd at least have an appreciation for maybe not, maybe you hate curling, but you'd at least like have an awareness for it that maybe more Americans I think I think they have. take away your passport if you're not at least able to identify what curling is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for being here and chatting with me today. Um, yeah, what did you want to talk about? Um, well, I thought we'd talk about uh, my first love, uh, which means that the story starts in the early 1990s at, at Carleton University's School of Journalism in, in Ottawa, Ontario, the capital of Canada. This is a story about, about um, me and, uh, as I said, my first love, a, a woman uh, who I'll call Lynn because uh, it's not her real name, but um, it's probably worth just protecting everybody just making it Lynn okay Lynn yeah Lynn Lynn and I were classmates in the school of journalism and uh we ended up the school of journalism at Carleton is a really weird place in that um it's one of these sort of uh they fancy themselves a fancy program on the first day of this the um the 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 program the dean of the school stands up in front of the classroom there's like 300 first year students and it's one of those look to your left look to your right only one of you will be here next year kind of of things this story takes place however in second year so we're in a a much smaller so both of you have made it past the the, run the gauntlet we've run the gauntlet yes and we're now in a, a second year reporting lab which is given that it's like 1990-91, a room full of uh, MS-DOS computers with uh, monochrome monitors. It looks like something out of, I don't know, war games or something like that. It's got the, you know, the, the you have to be of a certain age to recognize what it was like to work on a computer that didn't have a color monitor. But that's what we were do reporting on. We had very early uh, versions of Microsoft Word or something like that. And these... Uh, Computer labs also had a really early uh, version of IM. So you would be able to message people based on their seat number in the class. <laughs> so you, I can't even remember how it worked, but you would, you know, you would go some code for message and then the seat number and then a colon and then you would write a message. And um, I don't know how it started, but Lynn and I ended up sending messages, making fun of our instructor at the time, who was a guy, he was, he was universally referred to as the Prince of Darkness. He was, he was a consider, he was considered a really strict disciplinarian. There was a lot of, no, 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 slow down, write it down. Ask me the question again. A lot of really stern, brusque things. And, um, 
I was immediately struck by her just razor sharp wit. Like she was really, really fast and really, really funny and, and beautiful. Um, which all of which sort of put me, um, on my back foot because I was very inexperienced, very shy, uh, very nervous around women, uh, at that point in my life. Um, I, I, in fact, I have all kinds of stories about, you know, ways in which I was incompetent about talking to women to the point that when I met my wife, I actually gave her the wrong phone number. I was so nervous. I gave her the first three numbers of my cell phone number and the last four numbers of my uh, landline number. And, uh, you know, to her credit, she showed up at my front door and said, this number doesn't work. Do you want to hang out or not? Um, so anyway, uh, so when you, so you and Lynn, you're like goofing off in the classroom and, and whatever, but are you ever like hanging out outside the class? Like where, what are you doing when you're not like chatting each other and just being like, oh, making fun of your teacher or whatever? Right. So, I mean, we would spend hours on the phone, which I think is another sort of thing that might be an anachronism, but we would like, like lie on the floor of our respective, you know, rooms uh, and, and talk on the phone and we would, you know, we would hang out, we would go. I remember one particular situation where, um, we went for a long walk, um, in downtown Ottawa, which also, uh, again, for your American listeners who maybe aren't familiar, there's the, you know, the parliament buildings in Ottawa are, are, uh, are, are Capitol Hill where we, where we have our seat of government. And there's a, um, there's an eternal flame in front of, Parliament Hill. It's a big, uh, a big fountain and it has the coats of arms of all the provinces and territories in Canada. And because it's a, um, you can't get up there now because of security reasons, but back in the day, you used to be able to just walk on Parliament Hill at all hours. There were no fences. There were no cops. This is pre 9-11. And, um, I remember us going for a walk, uh, you know, on Parliament Hill and stopping in front of the flame. And we were constantly, you know, joking and, and goofing around. And I remember looking at her and telling her to make a wish. And she said, okay, I'll make a wish. And I, I, instead of throwing a coin in, I reached into the fountain. uh, and, And this might be years of bad karma. I don't know, but I reached into the fountain and I pulled out a coin and I handed it to her. So she kept her wish. She got she got a wish instead of giving one. So that's like kind of your like this is your like inner romantic comedy kind of this moment that This is a this is a moment. Yeah, that like didn't lead to anything but was like a real like oh this is us connecting on a level that I feel something that I there's something here but we're not, it it doesn't lead to anything. Well, it's because... funny because I'd like uh, I think part of um being inexperienced is is this idea of grand romantic gesture right? yeah like and, and i'm trying to reach out to her i'm trying to do something special um and you know it might be for that reason that you know not long thereafter it sort of came to an ultimatum it was like you know are are we doing this is this is this a is this just a friendship or is it a um you know or are we actually going to admit that we both have feelings for each other. We're going to do something about this. And, and the, 
the response to that. And it never, I mean, to my discredit. Yeah, I was going to say, was that like an actual conversation that happened? No, no, it was a lot of, it was a lot of like long stares at at me making long stares at her and saying, you know, are we going to, you know, like not even saying, but like willing her to know. Yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of just moments that something could have happened, but you're maybe a little too scared and too inexperienced to know that like I should do something. And And she's she's throwing off the vibes that essentially say that, you know what, this is not your, this is not going to happen, you know? Um, And so I guess after, you know, what seems like a long time, but uh, it, you know, a long time in your twenties, a year and a half or whatever, beating my head against a wall. um, This is when I ended up starting to see Jody who, you know, ends up being sort of my first real girlfriend, maybe when I'm uh, 20, 21 and that relationship. um, I was not a very good guy. It, 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 um, it revealed a lot of the stuff that I, I had unresolved in my own head and I, I really needed to be in therapy and, uh, didn't realize it that yet, but the idea of, of being with someone who cared about me all of a sudden sort of blew all that open. And I had to, I had to, I had to eventually get to the point where I was dealing with the anxiety and, and, uh, depression that I had around that part of my life. And then eventually I went off and and got the therapy when essentially when she couldn't put up with it anymore. I feel like I started therapy also like kind of after a breakup in a place where I'm like, oh, I probably should have been doing this during the like the relationship would have been healthier if I was like taking time to work on myself. But I chose the relationship ending to be like, oh, I should start working on myself now. And it was helpful, but it was like, oh, this would have been more helpful. Well, you know, I I don't, especially if it's your first real relationship, it's, that's a pretty gigantic spotlights on spotlight on the cracks in the wall. Right. Yeah. And I just never experienced any of those feelings. You've never gone through them. And then all of a sudden you're feeling them for the first time. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was like, oh, wow. You know, this, this foundation is nowhere near as solid as I thought it was. Um, and then the, there's the thing about a relationship or at least a relationship with a decent person. And, and, and Jody was definitely that is that they hang in there and they help you. Yeah. And I guess it's probably the first time too, right? Like at that age, especially you said sort of your first relationship, like somebody is being let into your life at a level that like only your family has been at to that point. Right. It's like, or maybe a close friend or whatever, but it's like, that romantic, like the the combination of a, like a romantic partner who's also like this close to you on a daily basis or something like that knows knows more about you than very few other people do. Yeah, and I mean, in my in my case, um, my my family upbringing is like was so chaotic that it may have been, um, you know, apart from close friends, the you know the first time anyone had ever, I mean, apart from my brother, the first time that any, anyone had ever really been that close to me, which, yeah. you know, which is part of the reason why you end up in therapy in the first place is you're going to go, Oh, you know, all this stuff that I think I processed. Okay. Because I've managed to be successful in all these ways. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of stuff that, that I haven't worked on yet. And I, it's a lot easier to ignore that when you're alone in your room than it is when <laughs> yeah. you're trying to be open and, and a decent person to, um, to the person you're with. So, yeah, I mean, the breakup with her was uh, with Jody was was not pleasant, and um, you know, and I was in the wrong, and uh, we haven't spoken since. Um, but around that time as well, um, so one of the thing, one of the last things I did 
uh, one of the last courses I took in journalism school, in my last year of journalism school, it was a documentary film course. And one of the things that I found really attractive about Lynn was her voice. She had a, she had a beautiful, low uh, voice. And we did this documentary. Um, it was on a, on a house uh, called L'Arche for uh, disabled people. Um, who live sort of open, openly in the community. And um, a dear friend of mine, Matt, and I directed this movie together. And we, I said, you know who we need to get to voice this? We need Lynn to come in and voice this film. Like kind of narrate the documentary? To narrate the documentary, yeah. Um, and And he agreed. And so that was, I mean... I accidentally on purpose made this suggestion. And at this, so at this point you kind of said like you two had sort of drifted apart. Like, are you still in classes together? Like, yeah, she's around, I'm around, but we're not really, you know, like I've got this girl, I've got this girlfriend, I, you know, like, and, uh, and I sort of, there were, there may or may not have been a, an ultimatum at one point before Jody and I started, you know, sort of a, you know, a shit or get off the pot moment. Like, are we, are we doing this or are we not? Um, and then I end up uh, dating Jody for a year and a half. Um, so long story short, she and I, uh, get into this sound booth at the school and she gets a script and she voices a script and we start talking again. And, you know, Jody had essentially broken up with me. She'd left and I had a, uh, a small house party. Um, at there, I, I lived with four guys in a house in Chinatown in Ottawa. Um, and, uh, we would periodically, you know, get people together. And Lynn at the time, um, she lived in an apartment about three blocks from our house. And we had gotten back in touch because of this documentary project. And I, um, I invited her to the party. It was a year end party. It was a, it was a big party. So it, it, um, it didn't have to be super significant that she was there. She was one of a lot of people who were there. A lot of our classmates were there. Um, and I, 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 she had had enough to drink and I had had enough to drink and we were both single. She had gotten out of a, a relationship as well that I remember us being alone in the kitchen and for some reason, caution was thrown to the wind and we actually started to, you know, rub up against each other and, and have this start to happen. And I'll never forget one of my best friends at the time who really loved Jody and didn't really think too much of Lynn. And I remember her coming into the kitchen with me at one point when Lynn had gone to the bathroom or something and essentially pointedly looking me in the eye and saying, so how's Jody? And I went, uh, she broke up with me. <laughs> yes, and essentially that was the situation. So, Fast forward a period of time and uh, Lynn and I start as boyfriend and girlfriend. Okay. So this like, Lee, it's not just kind of this like one off thing. It's sort no, of like, it's not just this a, moment maybe was enough to like cut those like awkward silence bear. You need a little alcohol to cut those like awkward silence barriers down, have this moment happen. And then it builds. Into and then something. all of a sudden, yeah, we are, we are together at this point and we and we uh are expressing how much we care about each other and it's good it's not easy um 
because a lot of the same anxiety and and uh, difficulties that I'd been dealing with in therapy uh, came up in the early days of a relationship with with Lynn. But um, she was there for me in a way that that was profound. I remember um, at one point, not long into our relationship, um, we took a bus trip to around Guelph where her parents were living at the time. And I, um, I remember it being really, really difficult. Um, I can't remember specifically what was causing things to make me so scared and, and a wreck at that point. But I remember her, um, putting her hands through my hair and lying me down on her lap on the bus seat. And it was, it was beautiful. It was warm and it was, it was comforting. And I felt safe in a way that, um, I don't think I had a lot since then. Um, yeah, there's a real intimacy to kind of this like simple moment that you're having. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. The, the, I, I tend to think of things in, in the context of lyrics. I think about music a lot <laughs> and there's, um, there's a song by uh, Alejandro Escovedo um, uh, called Five Hearts Breaking. And he's describing a woman that he loves. It, it, it's, it's a simple, simple sentiment, but uh, there's a line in it that makes me choke up every single time. And it says, she, she takes his hand, she looks into his eyes and says, believe, believe, everything will be fine. Everything will be all right. And I... I needed that really, really badly at that point in my life. I really needed someone who I believed was going to be, um, to be there for me. Um, because one of the reasons why my life had been very, very chaotic up until that point is that, um, my mother had, uh, been diagnosed with brain cancer when I was, when I was uh, 11 years old. And, um, so I grew up in this context of my my mother being critically ill for large portions of my sort of you know most vulnerable childhood and that um that would be difficult enough but for the fact that my my father also um who passed away recently uh my father had um mental health issues that made him not a very competent parent so um, in a lot of ways, I was taught quite early to um, that the only person who could look out for me was me. Yeah, you're having and to grow up a little faster than you might have Much faster than to. I think a lot of people uh, should. And not, you know, what you end up learning is that you end up getting all kinds of strengths in ways that you wouldn't wish upon an enemy, right? And so, you know, in hindsight, I'm... I'm I've got all kinds of strengths. I'm good in a crisis. I'm, I've, I've got perspective on things in ways that uh, I would not have had had I not grown up um, in such a chaotic environment. But um, that means also, you know, when you're young and you're first encouraged to be vulnerable, you're like, uh, you've been holding on to something to so tight for so long that when someone comes along and says, hey, hey, you want you let me hold it too? You, like, 
you fall apart. And yeah, this thing um, is not no longer as heavy because I have another person carrying it with me. Yes, and it's also not a uh, not a log. It's it's a bag full of sand, and there seems to be sand leaking. Yeah, all it's the not. Place. It's it's no longer physically as heavy, and I have another person that's helping me drag this thing now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess the 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 reason I bring all of that up is because um. About, I don't know, 18 months or two years into my relationship with Lynn, you know, we'd both graduated. I was now living in an apartment on my own. I didn't have roommates. Um, my mother died. Um, it was uh, the Christmas of uh, 1994, actually 1993-94. Um, and she died uh, on December 20th, 1993. She, was, she wasn't even 50 years old. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, like it, it, it's funny. The first instinct is to say things like in the movies, but I don't think it's even in the movies. It's more like in the, um, in news coverage, when you see images of people, uh, in mourning who are like holding pictures of their loved ones and, and howling. I remember, despite the fact that for my most, you know, f- for the most part of my memory. So when I, from, from my, from the sixth grade up until that point, the idea that my mother's illness could eventually take her away, um, was a fact for me. Despite that, when the news actually came, I remember my father calling me. I remember him as if it's not a cliche. I remember him asking me to sit down first and then I remember sitting down and in this tiny little apartment on Nepean Street in Ottawa on this cheap blue futon that I had, um, I remember howling. I remember just screaming in pain. Um, and I had to um, I had to pack up and I had to go home for my mother's funeral in the week before Christmas. I had to, I had to obviously cancel a bunch of Christmas plans that I'd had with with Lynn and, and, um, I flew home, but before I did, um, she took me aside and, uh, she said, I have something for you. And it was a necklace that had a coin with a hole drilled in it. And she had taken the coin that I had taken out of the fountain, um, yeah, back when you were just friends. Back when we were, in theory, just friends. Um, years before. And she drilled a hole in it and she turned it into a necklace. And she held on to it all that time. And it seems kind of funny because, like, this this grand failed romantic gesture that I had that I thought had, you know, failed abjectly actually turned out to be quite successful. Yeah, like something she, something stuck. Seriously. There was a reason she, she didn't just throw that into her coin. Exactly. Like, she didn't, she she didn't use it for laundry just, later yeah, on, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it, 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 had, um, it had taken a pride of place for her, obviously, over that time. And so I uh, immediately put it around my neck and I wore it home. Um, sadly... <laughs> Uh, I I uh, I used it as a, a totem so much while I was sort of getting through this time, you know, through my mother's funeral and 
putting up with my dad during this period, um, that I ended up fidgeting with it enough that I ended up losing it uh. on either the, uh, like either during the week or on the plane home. I remember, um, I remember it being, uh, you know, coming and I remember the conversation telling her that I had lost it. And again, not that you want to have too much foreshadowing or premonition or anything, but, um, it seemed like a bad sign in the overall scheme of things that, uh, you know, for a moment there, that was a symbol of, of how much we cared about each other. And then it, it became, even though, you know, I don't blame myself. I was in a, in a really bad space at the time. It was very easy to lose things. Um, it became a preview of, uh, of what would eventually be a relationship that wasn't particularly healthy for either one of us. Um, we did uh, end up moving in together and we spent, we spent several years living together. We spent over five years living together and um, by turns uh, deeply loving one one another. But um, in the end, I think uh, I loved her more than she loved me. And um, what she saw in me was stability and a future as opposed to, um, as opposed to someone that she loved. She, she saw, she saw a life that she loved maybe more than a person that she loved. Whereas I saw someone that I did very much love and, and, uh, um, had seen a future for in hindsight, uh, definitely not. <laughs> like you learn a lot more about, about what a healthy relationship is and what, and what you need from, from it and that sort of thing. But, um, at the time when we did eventually break up, uh, for good, uh, I would have been sort of, I don't know, 29 at that point. Um, it was, uh, it was quite the ordeal. We were living together and of course all of our friends were the same friends and we had to, had to break that up. And, and, and we also, um, worked not together, but in the same building. Um, I had worked, uh, for the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, uh, for a couple of summers while I was still in school and I ended up going in there full time. And, um, uh, Lynn started, uh, not long after I started there full time, uh, I, you know, through a combination of her own skill and, and a couple of my contacts, she also got a job there. So I remember, uh, the, the image that I remember the most vividly about this is, um, I stayed in the apartment. She moved in with her parents who were, who were, were living in Ottawa at that point. Um, so, um, you know, the idea was that we just flat out, we're going to see one another, which of course is great until you go to the cafeteria at lunchtime yeah, at work. And I, I, um, yeah, I remember her looking at me and she didn't want me to leave despite the fact that it was probably, you know, both of us knew that we were leaving because of the way she felt. Um, uh, and I remember staring at her in, in the cafeteria lineup in, in this police headquarters in, in central Ottawa and her nearly breaking down and crying in front of all these people, including the people she worked with. And she looked, she looked really, really small. Um, and my instinct was, you know, to protect her and make her feel good, but I had to, I had to try and, and do something for myself. So yeah, 
um, that's the story, I guess, of the coin in the fountain, um, and uh, and of Lynn and I uh, through the major relationship in my in my twenties. Yeah, which is also, I mean, it's such a not only is like your second serious relationship, right? Like it's from a, that perspective, it's a big deal. And then it's like this relationship that's through your 20, like kind of the age that you're figuring out who you are. Um, but then also kind of like losing somebody very close to you during that period of time and having that person there for you during that time. Like there's a, there's a lot of like life milestones that you're experiencing with this person at moving in with somebody for the first time. So it's like, there's all that added weight that, you know, this person has in your life and not that that's like uh, a farce or whatever, but like, yeah, you kind of, I feel like the way you sort of talk about it at the end, it's like you sort of had to kind of be strong enough to protect yourself or or take care of yourself in in this moment, uh, even though you did love and care about this person so much. Yeah, I had to to find... Um, and what, what I eventually found is a relationship, um, which was, I guess, more mutual. Um, you know, the, I, I think maybe that beat on the bus is a profound statement of, of what matters when someone is supporting you and is, you know, when you get that feeling that someone loves you as much as you love them. And when that's not there then you have, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are in those relationships, but it's not the kind of thing that has long-term healthy sustainability. Um, yeah. And so, and so, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of things that I think are foundational to have functioning relationships and not just romantic relationships, but friendships or business partnerships or whatever. And, and, um, a couple of them include like, I I think primarily primary of them is, is worldview and, and like where you're going. And if you're not going in the same direction, then, then you're eventually going to end up in a bad place. And I think, um, you know, when your worldview is in part based on, I love this person and this person loves me and that's not true or not as true as it could be. Um, it makes, it makes it, uh, sort of unsustainable in the long term. Yeah. Well, getting through that journey then led to you finding the person you, uh, you're with today. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a interim period in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Sorry. In the the wilderness in between. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, like three weeks later I, I met my eventual wife, but, uh, um, yeah, maybe that's a, maybe that's another story. Yeah. I, I wish, I wish I'd hadn't lost the coin though. I think, I think it would be yeah. a better story. Not that I would have saved the relationship or anything. No, but just... no, no, for me, not for the relationship, yeah. but for me, I think, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's profound to have a clear symbol of someone, uh, thinking of you like that. Yeah. And, uh, and it would have been nice. It also seems like it did get it. It was, it served its purpose of the point that it was the hardest is when you had it. And, and I mean, you can think of a lot of relationships that right, that way. Right. I mean, you talked about milestones, but like maybe that's what, that's what something like this has to be is this was not only for her, but for me, um, the relationship I needed at the time to get through what I was going through at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, that can be a relationship or it can be a, you know, a coin or a totem, you know? Yeah. So, 
Well, thanks so much for sharing all this, Keith. Yeah, Brian, it's uh, it's been fun, and and uh, I uh, I've feel like we've had the opportunity to hang out a bit in the last little while. It's been it's been yes. a real pleasure on yeah, my part. Yeah, because I know. So you have a podcast of your own that uh, do you want to tell people a little bit? Sure. About? Yeah, I also like you spend a lot of time thinking about stories and what makes a good story. And, um, as I maybe alluded to earlier, uh, talking about lyrics, cause I can't go 25 minutes without talking about music. My, my podcast is called the volume knob, uh, the songs that saved your life. And in each episode of my podcast, someone tells a story about, um, a situation in their life where music meant something to them. So uh, you were kind enough to appear on a recent episode of the show talking about a great mixtape that you and your buddy had made um, around the same time of your life where my story takes place in that sort of vulnerable time in our early 20s. Um, but I've, you know, told stories about, well, I've worked with storytellers who have told stories about all kinds of interesting things um, and the power of music in those things. So if people are interested in that kind of thing, they can uh, head over to my website, which is www.volumenob.net or uh, search us out on the socials. Cool. Well, thanks again, Keith. This was great. Great. Thanks, Brian. This is how we love. This is how we fight for something that's right. Love Hurts is produced, hosted, and edited by Brian Berlin. Theme music by Mickey Hommel. Show art by Caroline Mallon. You can find Love Hurts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about it. You can find Love Hurts on Twitter and Instagram at lovehurtspod, and our website is lovehurtspod.com. I'm Brian Berlin. And this is Love Hurts.